Good morning. Yeah, that was, that was a good, uh, good opening there. I shared some of the things that I would, uh, wanted to share as well. Um, running a race. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of uh, characteristics about that we can plug into uh, the Christian life, and hopefully we do. I'm reminded that what Paul said, that uh, he says that I don't beat the air, um, but I buffet my body daily to bring it under the subjection and lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, so... It seems like uh, a lot has happened this weekend. Anyway, it seems like we had a pretty full weekend. A lot has happened uh, even in the world around us, wars and rumors of wars and uh, just uncertainties and different things, um, changes in people's lives. And, uh, yeah, it's like Brother Richard said, that's, uh, we continue on and endure. So I want to bring forward today something that was on my heart, is putting off the sin and the weight that so easily besets us as well. So it's kind of along the lines as well to our uh, young people group, but... Uh, it uh, fits also very well to the older ones and to everyone that's here. And uh, before we begin, let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, we just bow before you. We want to thank you for who you are. I want to thank you, Lord, for your work in our lives. We thank you, Father, that uh, you are who you say you are and you'll do what you say you'll do. Your promises never change. Father, and uh, we know, Lord Jesus, that if we continue to keep our eyes fixed on you, if we continue to listen to your Holy Spirit and to be sensitive, Lord, to your Holy Spirit, that your work in us will continue to conform us more and more into the character and image of Christ. We know, Lord, that you are not as much concerned with the outward appearance, but much more what is going on in our hearts, what is in our minds and in our hearts, our motives and our thoughts. So we just pray, Father, for uh, your work, Father, to be continued in us, Lord, because we know if we are left alone, Lord, that is when you have given up on us. So, Lord, we know that if we're not facing trials or struggles, or that maybe there is something wrong. Maybe we have grown lazy and content and complacent in our lives. So we just uh, commit ourselves again to you, that we'll have hearts and eyes that are open to your word and to your work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so laying aside the, uh, the sin and the weight that easily besets us. I want to begin with uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. It says, Know ye not 
that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have from God, and ye are not your own, for ye were bought with a price. Glorify therefore, glorify God therefore in your body. So once we have made the discovery of the fact that we are the dwelling place of God, then a full surrender of ourselves to God must follow. When we see that we are the temple of God, we shall immediately recognize that we are not our own. Consecration will follow revelation. The difference between victorious Christians and defeated ones is not that some have the Spirit while others have not, but that some know his indwelling and others do not. And that consequently some recognize the divine ownership of their lives, while others are still their own masters. Revelation is the first step to holiness, and consecration is the second. A day must come in our lives as definite as the day of our conversion, when we give up all right to ourselves and submit to the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. But there may be a practical issue raised by God to test the reality of our consecration, but whether that be so or not, there must be a day when without reservation we surrender everything to him, ourselves, our families, our possessions, whatever it is our time, all we are have become his, to be held henceforth entirely at his disposal. From that day, we are no longer our own masters, but only stewards. And not until the lordship of Jesus Christ is a settled thing in our hearts can the Spirit really operate effectively in and through us. He cannot direct our lives effectually until all control of them is committed to him. If we do not give him absolute authority in our lives, he can be present, but he cannot be powerful. The power of the Spirit is quenched. So, if you think about this, ask yourself this question. What is it that I haven't given up? Is there anything in my life that I still hold on to that I won't let go is there anything God is asking of you that you're withholding from him? Is there a point of contention between you and him? And I have a story here that illustrates this point about a man that I'd like to read that went through this. It says, an American friend, now at the Lord, whose name we will call Paul, cherished the hope from his early youth that one day he would be called Dr. Paul. When he was quite a little chap, he began to dream of the day when he would enter the university, and he imagined himself first studying for his MA degree and then for his PhD. Then at length, the glad day would arrive when all would greet him as Dr. Paul. The Lord saved him and called him to preach, and before long he became pastor of a large congregation. By that time, he had his degree and was studying for his doctorate, but despite splendid progress in his studies and a good measure of success as a pastor, he was a very dissatisfied man. 
was a Christian, but his life was not Christ-like. He had the Spirit of God within him, but he didn't enjoy the Spirit's presence or experience his power. He thought to himself, I am a preacher of the gospel and a pastor of the church. I tell my people that they should love the word of God, but I do not really love it myself. I exhort them to pray, but I myself have little inclination to pray. I tell them to live a holy life, but my own life is not holy. I warn them not to love the world, and though outwardly I shun it, yet in my heart I myself still love it dearly. In his distress, he cried to the Lord to cause him to know the power of the indwelling spirit. But though he prayed and prayed for months, no answer came. Then he fasted and besought the Lord to show him any hindrance there might be in his life. That answer was not long in coming, and it was this. I long that you should know the power of my spirit, but your heart is set on something that I do not wish you to have. You have yielded to me all but one thing, and that one thing you are holding to yourself, your Ph.D. Well, to you and to me, it might be of little consequence whether we were addressed as plain Mr. Paul or as Dr. Paul, but to him it was his very life. He had dreamed of it from childhood and labored for it all through his youth, and now the thing he prized above all was almost within his grasp. In two short months, it would be his. So he reasoned with the Lord in this way. Is there any harm for me to be a doctor of philosophy? Will it not bring much more glory to thy name to have a Dr. Paul preaching the gospel than a plain Mr. Paul? But God does not change his mind, and all Mr. Paul's sound reasoning did not alter the Lord's word to him. Every time he prayed about the matter, he got the same answer. Then reasoning having failed, he resorted to bargaining with the Lord. He promised to go here and there to do this or that, if only the Lord would allow him to have his doctor's degree. But still the Lord did not change his mind. And all the while Mr. Paul was becoming more and more hungry to know the fullness of the Spirit. This state of affairs continued to within two days of his final examination. It was Saturday, and Mr. Paul settled down to prepare his sermon for the following day. But steady as he would, he could get no message. The ambition of a lifetime was just within reach of realization, but God made it clear that he must choose between the power he could sway through a doctorate's degree and the power of God, God's Spirit swaying his life. That evening, he yielded. Lord, he said, I am willing to be plain Mr. Paul all my days, but I want to know the power of the Holy Ghost in my life. He rose from his knees and wrote a letter to his examiners, asking to be excused from the examination on the Monday and giving his reason. Then he retired, very happy but not conscious of any unusual experience. Next morning he told his congregation that for the first time in six years he had no sermon to preach and explained how it came about. The Lord blessed that testimony more abundantly than any of his well-prepared sermons. And from that time, God blessed and owned him in an altogether new way. From that day, he knew separation from the world, no longer as an outward thing, but as a deep inward reality. And in daily experience, he knew the blessedness of the Spirit's presence and power. God is waiting for a settlement of all our controversies with him. With Mr. Paul, it was the question of his doctorate's degree. But with us, it may be something quite different. Our absolute surrender of ourselves to the Lord generally hinges upon some one particular thing. And God is after that one thing. He must have it, for he must have our all. 
I was greatly impressed by something um, that uh, a leader wrote in his autobiography. I want nothing for myself. I want everything for my country. If a man can be willing that his country should have everything uh, and he himself nothing, cannot we say to our God, Lord, I want nothing for myself. I want all for thee. So what is it in our life? that we're not willing to give up. And we all know Mr. Paul could have continued on his path and ignored what the Lord was asking him, finished his exam and gotten his doctorate degree. And I know one thing. Christ is not going to force you to give something up. It's all in our choice. He leaves that choice up to us. But uh, choices always have consequences. The key is that he sees the outcome. He sees where this will lead if, will lead us if we continue down his path. And uh, I guess it's, it's a matter of uh, do you want to be fully used by God or not? And uh, in the same way, you could say this about sin. Is there sin in our lives that we're not willing to give up? And in Ephesians 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 8, it says, For you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In Hebrews chapter 12, Verses 1 and 2, it says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, if you think about, uh, Brother Richard shared uh, about running. And uh, if you think about the people running in a race, like you mentioned, uh, you can easily see that uh, they don't carry a lot of baggage. You don't see people running a race with bags and backpacks and different things simply because it hinders their running. So if, you, if you've ever uh, looked at uh, or watched a race, you notice that they're very scantily clad. They have absolutely no extras. And if you even watch our boys back in the field, it's uh, you notice that before they start running, they take everything out of their pockets. They take off their lettermans, whatever it is, and uh, they make sure that there's no extra weight. And I think it simply is a uh, it's a definition when we look at a race that uh, God does not want us to be encumbered with uh, different things when we're running in a race. Uh, he wants us to be focused. 
and to make sure that we are running in such a way that we'll win the prize. And sometimes, I mean, even some good things in our lives, as Paul said, if we, we know that where he said, um, he that finds a wife finds a good thing. And I do think it's a good thing. If I, you find a good thing, if you find a wife. But he also went on to say that you are now concerned about your wife. You are, you're there for her. And uh, you, are, you want to please her. And you're concerned about her well-being. And uh, about her wants and her needs. And he's not saying that it's a bad thing. But he's saying that something has changed. It is, uh, you now are focused on that, more or less. So, if you look at these runners, they are meticulous and careful in their training not to overburden themselves with food, and in every way to remove what would be an impediment or hindrance. What is important to note is that they don't shed their possessions as they run. They have already let them go before they begin the race. So as applied to Christians, it means that we should remove all which would obstruct our progress in the Christian course. Thus, it is fair to apply it to whatever would be a hindrance in our efforts to win the crown of life. So it's not the same thing in every person. Um, it could be many different things. Um, it, it's, it's hobbies. Or for some, it may be pride or vanity. And uh, for some, it's uh, ungovernable tempers or imaginations of some kind of uh, corrupt imaginations, insensitive hearts, whatever it is that mars the image of Christ, you could say. And uh, <clears throat> Those weights and the sin that easily besets us. What does that verse mean? Easily beset. Uh, if, you, if you read it, it doesn't occur elsewhere in the New Testament. It means to stand well around or easy to encircle. Or some writers state it as the sin that hang it on us. So, if you think about the sin that... that easily encircles us. Um, if you think of your life, your previous life, before you were a Christian, it is, I believe, those sins that we freely indulged in before we became Christians. And I know that um, <clears throat> when, we, when Christ redeems us, He takes care of those things. He takes them away. But we know that the enemy doesn't take that sitting down as well. And uh, we are, I believe that we're far more likely to, uh, to give in to those sins again because of those previous addictions, you could say, the laws of association. And we fall into them we are easier, more prone to fall into them again. So, for me, I know in my life that those sins 
that God rescued me from, I found out that if you take a bite out of them again, that it's so much harder to uh, overcome the second time. It seems like God gives you grace um, that first time. He gives you grace and takes it away from you. But if you take it again, if you take it up again and take a bite out of it, you become weak in dealing with those things. It seems like that second time around, it's, it's a pretty long journey. And it's kind of like a PVC pipe that gets bent too often. Um, it gets weak and compromised. And I think it is, it is those points of weakness that we are to guard and protect the most. Because if that pipe will ever burst, it will probably be at that point of weakness. So we really have to be careful with those things. Um, and to watch ourselves that we, that we, uh, be, uh, that we master them and not allow them to crop up in our lives again. So, and I think in Satan's, in Satan's way of thinking that he simply wants us occupied. And uh, he just wants us busy with something because in that way, we're simply ineffective in the work of the kingdom. And uh, we're unprepared for the spiritual needs that come our way. Uh, when they do come our way. There's always this thing in the back of our minds, well, what about this thing in my life? And if spiritual need comes up, this is the first thing our minds go to, well, what about this thing I have in my closet? And uh, that's just the way it is. And it's just a tactic from the enemy to uh, cause us to become ineffective in our work or in, in the work of the kingdom. So, and in James 1, um, verses 12 to 15, it says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he has tried, shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted he every man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust had conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So, those weights as well, it's, uh, what is a weight? A weight is something simply that holds you down, that keeps you from becoming your best, or especially if you take the analogy of running, what is a weight? What could a weight be in our own lives? And it can be many different things. Um, it's just, I feel, there are distractions and things that take up our time. And we say, well, it's, it's not a problem for me. It doesn't bother me. You know, I can handle it. And uh, for instance, if you, if you think about drinking, for instance, or something like that, um, the key is that I feel is if, uh, can you give it up? Could you give it up today and it wouldn't bother you? 
Um, if it's not something that you can lay down today, then perhaps it's more than what you thought it would be. Um, Jonathan Edward wrote this. He says, religion allows us the enjoyment of sensitive delights temperately, moderately, and with reason. But the wicked man gluts himself with them. Any of the delights of this world are abundantly sweeter when they are temperately, taken temperately when they're ta- than when they are taken immoderately. As he that at a feast with temperance much greater pleasure of what he eats and drinks than he that gluts himself and vomits it up again. So by building up self-mastery and self-discipline through the gracious work of the Holy Spirit within, the Christian is given the prudence to eat no more honey than he can digest and that the relish of it might may remain. So with everything that well, Satan comes along and he whispers in our ears to indulge our senses. And the, word, the world today is continuously saying that. Indulge in your senses. Wherever you go, the signs that you see on the, uh, along the, the way, along the road, or at the advertisements, just indulge. But if you're like me, you notice that uh, too much food, too many gifts, too many options have a negative analogy on you. They have a negative, uh, I mean, effect on you. Instead of making you content, it seems like they depress you. And uh, they just have this overwhelming effect of you. It's kind of like uh, the candy store in Jordan there. When you take a young child in there, and I'm not against that, by the way, it's just an illustration, you will quickly find out that they walk around and they pick up a candy and pretty soon they see something else and uh, they're not happy with that. They want this one. And around us in a circle it goes until they're pretty much in tears, you could say. So, um, that's, that's kind of the way it is when you have too much of a could say a good thing. And uh, sin is the same way. What if we want to hold on to our sin? What if we love our sin? What if we love our sin? And the analogy I used is this. Let's say you had an accident and you severely broke your leg to the point that the bone has come out through your skin. You see and recognize the fact that you have a problem. You go to the hospital where you meet with a doctor who confirms that you indeed have a problem and that it requires immediate action to save your life. He tells you that you're going to have to be in, mul- in a multiple-hour surgery where there will have to be, they will have to place pins in your bone to keep it together as it heals. And then after the surgery is complete, you will have to endure checkpoints and appointments with months of rehabilitation and therapy to slowly get you back on your feet. He tells you that you have to treat your leg and wound with care as it, so it doesn't get infected. 
It's going to be a long prog- process that will involve a lot of pain. There will be ups and downs, good days and bad days. But if we do the surgery right away, we have a chance of saving your leg. <clears throat> but as you sit there, you say to the doctor, well, I certainly don't want to have to go through all of this, so I'll just go home, give me some strong pain medication, and we'll have we'll leave the leg as it is. And... Uh, And you go home and you think, maybe it'll get better. I'll just put a Band-Aid over it and see how it goes. And uh, I think we would all say that that person is not is not in his right mind. He has become blinded. So, um, and if you think about it, and you think about sin in, this, in a person's life, This person is going to be hindered in his work. His mind is always on his leg. He continuously is having to deal and take care of his leg. He cannot be useful in many areas of work because of the condition of his leg. And when he's in the house, he sits sits there and uh, he's just on pain pills. And we all know the answer to the scenario. He either has to amputate the leg or go into surgery and rehabilitation to save the leg, or else his whole body will become infected and he'll die. So forsaking our sin, we have no choice but to forsake our sin. And, uh, but I think it's also more in just forsaking our sin. It is even if we look at our lives and we say there is no blatant sin there, um, like if you go through the Ten Commandments, for instance, it says that you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, and things like that. Um, if we look at these things, if we look at these uh, commandments and we sit there and say, well, I don't do any of those. Um, I'm not guilty of those. But we know Jesus came along and he said, he said, um, it's the motive he was he was focusing more on the motive than just on the letter of the law. He said that, for instance, if you take that sixth commandment, he said, you have heard that it is said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But he goes on and he says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again. Anyone who says to his brother or sister, Reka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So he says that we should not only not kill one another, but we are supposed, we're not even supposed to get angry with each other. We can't go to the rule list at the end of the day and check off number six and think that we're doing all right. 
instead of asking, did I kill anyone today? We have to ask, what was my attitude toward other people today? This gets to the heart of the issue. God doesn't just want you to keep you from murdering someone. He wants us to be a forgiving and loving person, be sensitive to the people around us. God desires a heart condition that is not measurable or checkboxable, you could say. The rules about murder are to be followed, yes, but it is not the end of the issue. Rather, it means it is a means to a further end, and that end is a pure heart. So, um, <clears throat> our motives of why we do things, what are they? Because if you think about those verses in Luke chapter 10, um, he says here, Not everyone, though in Matthew chapter 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And... Uh, In the same sense, you had the disciples coming to Christ and uh, they were excited about the power that God had, been, had given them to drive out demons. And he says to them that um, I have indeed given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the powers of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what is the difference between these two, these two groups here? Um, why, if we think about that first group there that, that comes and says, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these things? What's the difference? Um, they're obviously, if I think about them, they're obviously, you could say they were not evil people because how could evil people have uh, this power? Um, I think the difference is that they were simply not in the will of God. They were not bearing fruit in their lives. They were simply, they wanted this thing for their own glory. Um, they wanted the Holy Spirit for their own glory like Simon the sorcerer did. And uh, God is out, you could say, to, he's interested in our, not only that we keep the commandments, but the motives behind it. And we know what he said to the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, which are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, which means you should have practiced justice, mercy, and faithfulness without also neglecting the former. 
You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. So he goes on and he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So, in a sense, God is not just, he's not interested. He's just handing down rules. And uh, for the sake of watching us jump through the hoops. But he's interested in making us into a type of people that are going to live with him forever. To become mature adults. So, I always say it this way. What's going to change once you get to heaven about your character? I mean, what kind of character will we bring to, to uh, the throne of God once we're, once we're there? Will, or will, he just, will God just look at us and then just whoosh all the things that we struggle with here, like anger or bitterness or uh, covetousness, or will those things all just disappear? You could say, well, you just take them away and say, okay, we're going to just bring you into heaven now. I think he's more interested in just, taking care of these things here in making us um, ready for heaven now. We don't, we don't have this mindset, we shouldn't have this mindset that, okay, this is, this is part of me. I have an anger issue and it's always going to be part of me and uh, just the way it is. And once I get to heaven, I won't have it anymore. So I don't think that's the way it works. It is, uh, as, he, as he says, it's, he says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. So, says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. So, I think motives are a big part of the Christian life, of why we do things, why we do the things that we do. Um, and we can see it through many examples in the Word of God that also in 1 Corinthians, I wanted to share that, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But I have not love. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. That's serious words. I mean, usually when we, when we think of a person and we look at a person, we say he would have the gift of prophecy and he understands and fathoms all mysteries and has all knowledge. You say, well, that's definitely a man of God and faith to move mountains. But it says, but if you don't have, no, if you don't have love, we're really nothing. And he goes on and he tells us what that is. So, I think the greatest acts of ministry in the world are pointless if they're not done with the right heart and with the right motive. And we can definitely also see that in uh, with how... How Jesus challenged the Pharisees. So, uh, yeah, I'm sorry again for that. And uh, I don't know why it sometimes happens to me this way. It's, uh, it is embarrassing and humbling, but whatever. It is what it is. Um, Yeah, so I just wanted to bring that. I know I didn't quite bring it out the way that I wanted, but uh, I guess that's okay too. I feel that our lives need to speak a lot louder than our words do. And recently I just felt... Again, that uh, I've let down some people in my own life. I could be doing more. If, if, you, if you sit back and you think about your family and about your people around you and what you're investing in other people and uh, what we're spending our time on, it, you always come away thinking, well, I could be doing, I mean, I, am I yielding? completely to Christ, to, to the Holy Spirit? Am I allowing the Holy Spirit full reign in my life? Or am I just hanging on to certain things and I'm not willing to let them go? And it's this whole idea of being encumbered. They're hindering us. They're hindering us in our race. They're clouding our eyes so that we don't see it spiritually. So... Uh, that's all I have to share today, and uh, thank you. God bless you.